0: Hi, and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights, informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm Marie Stella, your host from Melbourne, Australia. Let's start the show. Hi, and welcome back to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast. Emotional intimacy is a fundamental aspect of relationships. It's what helps a relationship thrive. But as humans who have gone through unpleasant experiences, it can be difficult to display that level of vulnerability. So today we're speaking to licensed marriage and family therapist Shelby Riley to find out how emotional intimacy plays a role in supporting relationships and resolving conflicts. But also, how to establish and maintain an environment for that intimacy to flourish. Hi, Shelby. Lovely having you on the show. Thank you for joining us today. How are you going? Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I know it's 11 p.m. on your side, so I. Thank you so much for graciously joining us at that ungodly
1: hour, and I hope that your mind somehow makes it through this. My pleasure. I'm a night owl. You do not want to see me at 8 a.m., so 11 p.m. is much better. Yeah, I'm (laughs) good. That's perfect. Yeah, I relate to that so, so well.
0: Um, But before we get sidetracked, do tell me about your background
1: in this area and how you got into it. Sure. I have been a marriage and family therapist um, really since even before I graduated with my master's degree. I graduated in 1999 um, from a really fantastic marriage and family therapy program. And from there, I um, was in California at the time and I got licensed out in California. I worked in psych hospitals and group homes and a private practice. Um, And then we moved to Pennsylvania to be closer to family And um, I opened a private practice here in Pennsylvania back in 2006. So I have been a licensed marriage and family therapist here in Pennsylvania, um, working with individuals, couples, kids, teenagers, families. I would say I work with clients aged four to 104 and kind of get to do all parts of um, family relationship work, um, but also mental health work. So certainly anxiety, depression, mood disorder, um, but a lot of it is looking at, you know, how can we use the entire family system to help clients um, feel better and do better and live better. So, um, and then in 2011, I actually started adding other therapists to my team, and so now I have a team of eight other therapists that works alongside me, and I get to um, mentor them and really um, help them develop as therapists while um, supervising their cases and it's really pretty fantastic that's amazing i
0: imagine must be so eye-opening um just witnessing or like speaking to all these people from different walks of life and have you were you originally from pennsylvania
1: no so i I was raised an army brat so i was born in germany i've lived in texas i (sighs) lived in new york Um, but i spent the bulk of my childhood in the northern virginia area and that's where My husband and I went to high school together. We started dating our junior year of high school. Um, We went off to college together down in North Carolina. And then um, the grad program that I was at was back in Northern Virginia. And then as soon as I graduated, we got married and moved across country to start our sort of married adult life new in California. And we were out there for almost seven years. We had our son out there and then we decided we really wanted to be back closer to family on the East Coast. But Pennsylvania was sort of as close as we wanted to be to D.C. because D.C. can be a little, um, you know, a lot. You know, there's a lot (laughs) of people, a lot of traffic and a lot of stuff going on. And so Pennsylvania is a really great location for us to be close enough to family, but still um, be able to kind of live a more relaxed lifestyle. That's such
0: a sweet and nice story. Now, before we get started, we'd like to get to know you and your interests a little better. This is Have You Met Shelby Riley? So I'm going to ask you a few questions about your favorite types of media and just you can elaborate as much as you want or as little as you want. So what is your favorite book?
1: That is like asking you know, a mother of 10 to pick her favorite child. <laughs> I am a voracious reader. I love, love, love books. Um, I think as a therapist, one of the books that I love the most is um, True Love by Thich Nhat Hanh. It is a amazing, thin little book that really addresses to the heart of what it means to be able to love safely and love well. But I really love fiction. I read a ton of fiction. and. Um, The one that I've kind of been the most jazzed about lately is a book called A Little Life um, that is really, really, um, really intense. And there's a lot of um, abuse in it. And so you have to like be sort of uh, warned that it's a it's a rough book, but it is a beautiful, empathetic, amazing book that I've recommended to quite a few people.
0: That sounds really, really good. Um, So I have a more general question then, which. I'm not sure if it's going to make it harder or easier for you to answer, but I'm just really, really curious as someone who reads a lot as well, what's your favorite genre?
1: Um, I mean, really like literary fiction, book club fiction, um, anything that has to do with um, sort of, yeah, that relationship strife. Um, I love the coming of age novels. Um, So yeah, that literary fiction category is my absolute favorite. That is a good genre. I love that. Um, do you have a favorite film? Yeah, it's gonna seem so cliche, but I love Goodwill Hunting. I just think it is such a fantastic um look at again, it's like this relationship stuff, right? Where it's like these guys and their childhood relationships that sustain them, but also um Will Hunting's relationship with his therapist played by Robin Williams. And it just, it's such a powerful film. I love it.
0: I know, I know that feeling so well of like, your favorite movie being one of the like, just everyone, everyone likes it. It's like your answer is not very different. But at the same time, it's like, how, how could you choose something else?
1: Right? Right? right. (laughs) Yes. Um, Do you have a favorite podcast? So, um, I don't have a lot of time, honestly, because through all the therapy that I'm doing and the books that I'm reading. Um, But I do have a friend and colleague who has a podcast here um, in Pennsylvania that is really fantastic. Um, She's a doctor and it's called Tell Me More. And it really, it's about um, opening up better conversations between medical professionals and patients. And she just is really doing a a great um, look at how can doctors be more empathetic and be better listeners and really try to um, engage with their patients in a more human way. And so I do love listening to that podcast.
0: That sounds amazing. You know, oftentimes I watch educational videos on like YouTube and things, and I'm always very intrigued by how doctors and therapists and like that that side of things, how it works. But I rarely hear about the empathetic side and like what it, what the challenges are and how you can overcome it. So that does sound really interesting to me. Um, do you have a famous role model?
1: Um, again, I feel like it seems a little cliche, but um, Brene Brown has just done such amazing work in the area of vulnerability and relationships. Um, and I just think her books are the ones that I read and I'm like every single person on the planet at the age of 12 should read these books because I think it's such a great primer for being more aware of how we can be brave and be vulnerable in our relationships, which would make us a lot healthier in our relationships. So I love Brene Brown. What's the first book
0: of theirs that you would recommend to people to start
1: reading? Um, So I think the first one... Oh, and I'm going to blank on the title right now Um, is, but it's not the first one that I read. Daring Greatly is sort of her, I think, most um, famous and most widely read book. And it's the one that I read first and um, I really did love it. And so that's probably the one that I would recommend. And then um, all the ones after that sort of launch, you know, out of that book, so.
0: (laughs) That's amazing um what's the last course you've completed
1: um so i have to do a lot of training for um we do ceus to kind of keep up with our skills um but the the last one that really had a huge impact on me was i got trained in emdr so it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing and it's a therapeutic approach used for trauma Um, and it's you know, hours and hours and hours and days and days and days of training and then practice and supervision. Um, But it's just really revolutionized to the way that I get to work with certain clients where EMDR is really the most effective, quickest, I mean, and least painful way to go about resolving some of their trauma. So I have loved what EMDR has done for my work with clients. That's so
0: interesting. Um, What, is your biggest takeaway from that course?
1: Um, I I think it's really recognizing that we all have trauma. Like we have, there's big T trauma, you know, like I was held up at gunpoint and, you know, robbed. um, And that means you know that I'm having nightmares and I'm scared. But then we all have these little T traumas too that impact us in these ways that we're not really that aware of, but that we carry through and that cause us to kind of engage in our lives in some ways that Makes sense if we're dealing with trauma, but when we're no longer dealing with trauma, it no longer makes sense. And to see how our brains store memory and how capable we are as human beings of actually like reprocessing those memories and untangling them from all of these other memories so that we can store them in a cleaner, healthier way, and then we just don't get as activated around certain things, and so then we're not making as big of a mess, um, trusting the health of our brain and the fact that every single human like really desires and has the ability to be healthier and less reactive um, has just been incredibly, it's like I already knew it in the work that I do, but sometimes in talk therapy, it takes years to get there and to see it happen so quickly through EMDR and the fact that we're trusting that person's brain to lead us in the process and not like me as the expert, I'm going to lead you or like you as the client have to figure out how to say it, that the process of EMDR frees all of that up. And it's been really, really amazing to see just really the the health potential of every single person. That sounds
0: like revolutionary and i don't like uh-huh. using this word yeah. too, too often yeah. because i feel like it diminishes the meaning but it yes. truly does sound revolutionary uh-huh. and something that i have to look into or something because i totally. get traumatized from like minor awkward interactions from a week ago So <laughs> that really feels like something i need
1: yeah, no totally look into it it is really i mean i agree i don't like to use like oh it's life altering but it's kind it of magical it is magical so i would definitely recommend you look into it
0: yeah amazing i will uh, now we're getting into the interview uh, first question that we like to ask is what is a relationship to you how would you describe a relationship
1: I think that's such a hard question you know it's like there's so many ways that you can approach what a relationship is because i i think of it even it's like a connection and like a series of interactions that you have. And sometimes that's just with yourself, right? Like we each have a relationship to ourselves. So it doesn't even mean that there has to be another person there. It's really how do we think about either ourselves or another person? How do we talk to them? How do we treat them? How do we engage them? What do we give and what do we take? And so I think, you know, to me, it's really about connection and about interaction and what does that interaction look like, you know, because relationships can be very unbalanced. They can be really one-sided and really being able to look and see, you know, what is that connection about and what does that interaction look like? That to me feels like the base of relationships.
0: Absolutely. I agree with you there. Um, So in in your opinion, does a relationship, especially a romantic relationship, still hold the same meaning, structure and importance
1: as decades ago? You know, I think it's a it's a great question because my my immediate response is yes, of course. Right. Like human beings crave to connection and we really do. Most of us want to be um, in relationship with other people. We want that companionship. Most people are seeking out romantic relationships and they'd like those to be long term. So I think there still is that base. But we are seeing, and this has probably always been the case, but we just have way um, more access to the information and a lot more ways to kind of look at describing it, that not everybody's getting married like they used to. Like we're, we're not really living by those social norms. And people are finding that maybe they don't need a romantic partner for their life to feel complete. Maybe what they need are a few good friends. And so I think that expansion of the idea of relationship, because you know, there's polyamory where there's you know more than two people in a relationship, and so I think those parameters that it used to be like are changing. My my in-laws are really cute. They're in their almost they're almost 90, and so I have these young wow. um, nieces and nephews in their 30s, you know, and they're just like. Oh, when are they getting married? You know and I'm like? You know, not everybody does that now. Like, that is not the thing that's going to make them feel stable and happy. There are lots of other ways now to have a solid, healthy life that doesn't depend on um, a long-term romantic relationship.
0: Yeah, and their relationships are still as valid. It doesn't matter if you're polyamorous, it doesn't matter if you're into ethical non-monogamy, they're still valid relationships, a hundred percent. So how would you define emotional intimacy?
1: So yeah, I think that that is the ability to really feel safe and feel close and feel known by another person. Um, And that can be different for everybody. I think a lot of times what I see in my office is that clients sort of feel like there's probably one right way to do intimacy and like, are we doing it right? Or like, I'm doing it right and he's doing it wrong. And could you please tell him he's doing it wrong? But that people get to decide together what intimacy looks like for them. And that, you know, my marriage might look very different from somebody else's long-term committed relationship in the level of intimacy, because what I've developed with my husband and what we both crave and like may not be what another couple craves and likes.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, So what do you think emotional intimacy looks like in a relationship,
1: both in general Um, and in like
0: everyday life?
1: You know, I think most people find that emotional intimacy Um, through verbal interaction, you know, that talking and sharing sharing one's thoughts, sharing one's emotions, you know, sharing one's dreams feels like the most basic way that a lot of people find that intimacy. Um, And then, of course, through physical intimacy, you know, that a lot of people find that that deepens their level of emotional intimacy. Um, But it's not, again, one size fits all and that for some people, walking around their neighborhood for 10 minutes silently can feel like a really intimate act, a way of spending that time together. Um, And so there are lots of different ways to kind of engage in that emotional intimacy. But I think, and we might get to this in a little bit, you know, but I think the number one thing that has to be present for true emotional intimacy to exist is safety. And so being a safe person and being a safe partner or a safe friend or a safe lover or whatever it is, safe parent, like that is really a prerequisite for true intimacy.
0: I love the way you frame that because safety is so important in relationships. Um, And I think that's something like when we are younger, it's, it's probably something we don't think about as much. And then we have to make mistakes and go through like all of these to figure out, oh, actually I should be feeling safe and not just physically, but also emotionally. I should be having someone that makes me feel safe. And that's really, really important to establish that. Um, so what are some things that can foster emotional intimacy between partners? I know you already talked about safety, Um but for example, like shared experiences,
1: any kind of behaviors. Yeah, shared experiences is a really great one um, because when you're doing something sort of novel and new and different, there there is that bond that happens, and then those memories that you share around. Like, oh, remember when we climbed Everest? You know, and how hard that was, and what we learned about each other in that process, and so. I do think um, it's one of the things that we often encourage longer term couples who are sort of into the day-to-day busyness of life is to make sure it's not like just, oh, go on a date or like go on vacation, but to like really try new things together because that does engage in emotional intimacy. But I think the one thing I see here um, that is paramount is time. That so many people are just so busy that they don't have time, and they take it for granted that they should feel close, um, because maybe they, you know, already engaged in some dating and some, you know, stuff, and and so now they can just sort of take it for granted that they're close. But relationships require attention and they require time, and so being able to set that time aside to actually be with that person, say, how are you and how was your day, and not just like, oh, how was your day? Okay, bye, bye. You know, like, but to really ask and listen. And I think one thing that really makes a huge difference is honestly, like really listening to what they say and then following up, you know? So if they're like, well, I'm really nervous, I've got this huge presentation tomorrow and I just don't know how it's gonna go. So then the next day, at the end of the day, instead of just going like, oh, how was your day? When you just, it's so simple, but to say, how did that presentation go? Cause then they go, oh, they remembered and they cared, right? And then they get to go, oh, it actually went a lot better. And then really being able to, to give them the feedback about who they are, being able, not just like, oh good, I'm glad it went well. But if you say, I knew it was gonna go well, right? Because you you prepared, you worked so hard and you're so charismatic, who could not love you and listen to you that giving that kind of personal attention and feedback is what what really does foster good intimacy as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that holds true for other relationships, not just romantic ones as well. Like if you're talking to a friend, it it really like the quality conversations that you have, not just like small talk of how are you? Okay, that's all. And, you know, just making the other person feel heard and seen um, does a lot more than people think, um, especially also with paying compliments and not just like generic ones, not just like, oh, you look good today. It's like, oh, this I see that you put a lot of thought into this specific thing and I really like it. And I like the way you did it. And I have gotten compliments like that and I've been received, like I've been giving these compliments as well. And I often find that people get so um, surprised and like pleasantly surprised. So it's, um, it's a nice little habit, I think, to, to, to establish in your everyday life will help with romantic relationships as well. Um, so that's cool. So, <laughs> so why do you think it is important for couples to cultivate this emotional intimacy in their relationships?
1: I mean, I do, I th- just like what you said, right? That all of us as human beings crave to be known. We crave to be seen and heard. And what I'll say is, you know, if you could put this on a spectrum, That this one couple might really crave deep, deep, deep intimacy, and they might be the kind of couple that spends an hour every night just going into a deep dive on all of their emotions of the day. And there might be another couple where they go, "Oh, we don't really like that kind of intimacy. That's a bit much and a bit overwhelming. And (laughs) we like to keep it, you know, a little more surface." But here are the key ways in which we show each other that we see each other, and so there isn't one right level of intimacy and it isn't like, oh, if you don't have this deep intimacy, then your relationship isn't as healthy or as valid or as good. But it's really being able as a couple or, you know, a friendship duo or a thrimple or, you know, whatever your situation is to be able to sort of continue to communicate about that because relationships evolve. They are ever changing. And one of the things that my husband and I have always done is like, Every six months, we kind of sit down and we do a little state of the union and we go, are we living to our values? Are we really making choices in our life that fit for who we are? And are we saving enough time for each other? And does our relationship feel like it has the intimacy that we want And if it doesn't, what's missing? And like, what do we need to do differently? Because I think a lot of times people think like, oh, I just have to choose the right person and if I fit with that right person and I choose that right, then everything will go okay. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, it's a, such a dumb metaphor, but I will often say it's like a garden that like, you really do have to go out and you have to water it and you have to like enrich the soil. You have to pay attention to it for it to thrive. And you also have to weed it. Like, you have to get rid of the stuff that's choking it. And so I think it's that in a, in and of itself is an intimate act, right, to sit down and go, am I doing as your partner? Like, what do you need from me? And do you have, are you getting what you need from me? And if you're not, what can I do better to help you feel seen and loved and safe and cared for?
0: That's such a good metaphor. It's like, yes, the the plant that you are trying to grow might be in the right environment, but that doesn't mean that you just stop taking care of it and it will just go. You still have to water it. I, I do really like that metaphor. It's very apt. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, co- but well, yeah, well, to my next point, conflict is inevitable. So how does emotional intimacy affect the way couples navigate and resolve their conflict? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, personally, to me, I really feel like sometimes conflict is actually a great initiator of intimacy. Like sometimes we have to have it out. We have to get into a fight to really express how we're feeling. And then it's like sometimes that passion that's expressed in conflict shows that we are both really committed to, to seeing this through. Like if, if I'm not fighting with you, maybe it's cause I don't care, right? I mean, so it's like, I, I don't mind conflict in a relationship. And honestly, personally in my own relationship, I do like, you know, once a year, a good fight because it just it <laughs> feels like, you know, a eh, I I got it in me, you know, it's, it's like, you kind of want to get it out. But B, it just, it does it feels like we both are in this, we care about this. And it's interesting to watch different couples because um, some couples are super passionate and they're really intimate and they like really share a lot emotionally and they share a lot sexually and then they fight like crazy, but they... They both can really sustain that. And although it might feel a little overwhelming at times, when we really break it down, they don't really want to change much about it because to lose the conflict is part of their intimacy style. And then there are other couples where maybe because they're not so intimate, they either get along, you know, a lot better because they're not bumping into each other a whole lot more. Um, And so then it just feels like a little more distant, maybe a little colder, but for them it works or maybe it doesn't and we get to kind of resolve that. Um, But then there are other couples where because they have developed the ability to be really safe with one another and they are intentionally and purposefully vulnerable and intimate with one another, it naturally lowers their level of conflict because they know how to communicate and they know how to engage in a safe way. And so it doesn't have to get conflictual so often, which is what I think most people are kind of looking to do, you know, is can we get healthy about how we communicate so we don't fight so much?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So essentially there's no one right way to, have a healthy relationship. Different relationships yeah. are different. Not gonna <laughs> lie, Shelby, that is confusing me even more. <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, so how do I tell if my relationship's actually healthy or not? <laughs> but, like, I mean, it's good to know, but at the same time, it's like, oh, like, it's, always, isn't it going to weigh on you a bit?
1: Yeah. Relationships are, I think, one of the most difficult things for human beings to figure out because it's like we're kind of sold a rule book you know and there are some rules like you really should not ever physically assault somebody you know you should not verbally abuse somebody there are some very clear rules in place but pets those biggies i mean there's a lot of space to say it is really about and i hate the word contract but it's kind of what it is is developing a contract between you and the other person to decide what works for us and there really is no one bright way or one rule book that says if you're doing all of these things then you have a healthy relationship it's there's great freedom in being able to say oh I get to actually know myself and be authentic and develop something that fits for who I am and who this other person is but then it is very confusing to figure out like are we just being really dysfunctional and how we do this Um, but I often feel like like the the proof is in the pudding, right? Like if you feel generally pretty safe, pretty content, and at the times that you don't, it doesn't feel like it crosses the line into abuse, right? It might just be like, oh, I was so mad, you know? Or like, oh, he's so irritating. Um, I often will say like, if this is the worst thing that you have to deal with in your relationship, can you deal with it? You know, and like sometimes that worst thing is something where I'll go, you should not ever, ever have to deal with that. That that crosses the line into abuse. But a lot of times, you know, there's little pieces. I once had a couple, they were amazing because they came in and they're like, we really need help. Like we do not like the state of our relationship, but we're really worried about starting therapy because we have a few really weird things that we do that we don't want to stop doing. And we're worried that you're going to tell us that they're bad and we should not do them. And I was like, no worries, right? Like, do you both agree that you like them? And they were like, yes. And I'm like, and like, do they feel like they are um, damaging to either of you in any way? They were like, no. But if we told you what they were, you would be like disgusted by us you know, or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, no. I was like, everybody gets to have some of these weird little things. And as long as both of you agree, that it's kind of fantastic or great or like brings you together in some weird way. Like I I had a couple where they would, when they fought, they would like jokingly, but sort of funnily like tell each other how they were going to like kill each other and bury their bodies in the backyard. And right, like on first blush, you're like, that's so bad. But they both thought it was hilarious and they both knew that it was never gonna happen, that it was like this weird little way of blowing off steam and it actually brought them closer, right? It's intimacy. It really is this little trick that they had to. If they're basically saying, "Like, I'm so mad at you right now, right?" But like, it actually brought humor and joy to conflict and and brought them de-escalating, right? Like, well, so I can
0: actually see how like it would be, it would turn into a running joke and yes. yeah. how that would strengthen the bond there and give some light to the conflict as well. Yes. Um yeah, I really like that actually. I'm gonna <laughs> use that. <laughs> I'm gonna it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds really fun. <laughs> um so many couples do struggle with openly expressing their emotions and vulnerabilities. So what are some common challenges they would have to face when trying to develop this emotional intimacy.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me how if you really look at how are we taught to express emotion, like our families are where we learn the rules and most families like are just coming generation after generation after generation of people who weren't actually taught about emotional intelligence. And so really some of the things that I do when we work with kids and then all the way up through adults, some of what I do is just this really basic emotional intelligence, emotion regulation work, which is can you start getting really good at recognizing when you're having a feeling? Like just all of the physical sensations that go on. And then when you're having a feeling, then can you stop and go, what is this feeling, right? Is this fear? Is this anger? Anger is the easiest emotion to express. And so if somebody is scared, if somebody is sad, if somebody is hurt, anger. And so if you can go, wait, before I do anger, like what other feelings are there? And then being able to say, how do I want to express that feeling? What's an appropriate way to express that feeling? And I kind of with kids, you know, I'll be like, is it okay, parents, if these kids just stomp around the house and I'm like, I am hurt, you know, like, I am sad because you took away my game, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's appropriate. It's not fun to watch, but like, that's appropriate. They're not hurting anybody, they're not doing anything. And then can they learn how to calm that feeling down and soothe themselves? And then can they bridge to the next feeling? And so like that bridge is sometimes like a walk or a TV show or a shower or like a cup of chocolate milk, you know, or whatever it is that like we all as humans need to learn, what am I feeling? Like, how do I want to express it? How do I want to soothe it? How do I want to bridge to the next feeling? Because it's really hard to share how you're feeling if you don't actually know how you're feeling. And so practicing that and getting good at that is key to then being able to be vulnerable enough to look at somebody and go, i can really hurt by what you said. like, this is what's coming up for me. And then what you want is that partner to be safe. That other person has to be safe enough to not go, oh, don't be so sensitive or, oh, you always do this. Like shutting down that person. That's kind of what teaches us, right? Like so many of our parents, we like got all upset and they were like, knock it off, right? Like stop that, like behave yourself. And they didn't, they didn't stop and go, what's going on? What are you feeling? Let's, let's work through that now, right? And so I do think that emotional intelligence is key to being able to share your emotions with another person and be vulnerable enough to do it.
0: Yeah, those are some great questions to ask. And I have to say, I do relate to children. It's like, if someone took away my game, I would probably want to stomp around the house and be mad for a bit. so that's That's kind of valid and that should be that should be addressed (laughs) you know it's like your feelings are valid however like there are reasons to it um it's okay to be angry as long as you don't do anything harmful like stuff like that um so how can these challenges be overcome overcome what's the right english phrasing for that, like, how can we overcome, overcome?
1: How can we overcome how these can challenges? We,
0: yeah. How can we overcome these challenges? And what are some common danger zones or pitfalls that couples might face when trying to express
1: their emotions? I think, I think the very first thing that is so I mean, there's so many, honestly, like as I'm thinking I'm like, oh, what do we do with people, right? Like where the very first thing is that emotional intelligence work. It is really getting good at them understanding themselves because you can't share if you don't know. Then it really is being able to recognize that you are a different person than your partner. Because sometimes we're like, oh, if I feel this way, they should totally understand why I feel this way, or they should know I feel this way without me having to tell them. And really being able to recognize that not everybody responds to the same things in the same ways. Not everybody would have the same reaction that you're having. And that sharing that with your partner is not indicative of them not loving you or not paying attention to you. It's the fact that they are not you. They don't share your brain. And so those two basics, understanding what's going on with you and understanding that your partner is a different person than you are key. Because what we'd like to do is like play these weird games and be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, and then they're like, wait, you don't seem fine. Well, you'd know it if you know if you paid enough attention to me, you'd know, you should know. And it's like, oh, what are we doing? And Then they say like, oh, I, I'd le- I really wanted you to buy me flowers, but you didn't. And then they're like, well, I'll go buy you flowers now. And they're like, well, don't do it now. Now it's too late. You know, it's like all that stuff where it's like, You could actually look at somebody and go, you know, one of the ways that I really feel celebrated is if you would buy me flowers. And then that person buys them flowers and they go, oh my gosh, you listened. Hooray, thank you. You bought me flowers like I wanted, as opposed to like, well, you only did it because I told you to. Right, they did it because you told them to. That's amazing. They Mm -hmm. did what you asked, you know? So that, that recognizing that, we really do have to share how we're feeling. And we really wanna be able to do that in a very safe way. Because when we do it out of criticism or we do it out of anger, we think they should have mind read already and we're just annoyed that they don't live in our own brain, it's gonna disrupt everything. And so I think that's a big thing too that I ask couples to um, practice is not resolving the conflict. like. You're not coming up with a solution. You're not problem solving. What I want you to do is just take turns sharing what your perspective is and then doing this very annoying. Okay, what I heard you say is so that you're just reflecting back what you heard the other person say because we spend so much time trying to like think about what we're going to say to convince the other person that like to see it our way or feel how we're feeling. We don't even listen. And so we, we're we not even connecting. And so just practicing, like, you're really just trying to understand one another. You're not trying to convince each other of anything. That feels key, too, because until that's in place, you don't problem solve very well. What I'm
0: hearing is that one of the most important things to foster emotional intimacy is to debase yourself, step outside of your own Self and think about the other person that you're speaking to in the relationship. And that's really, really important, Um, which I think you put it so eloquently. um, And by the way, I love the entire skit that you did there. It felt like a little (laughs) flashback reel of my past relationships. (laughs) You really did put it so eloquently um, because when I was younger and a lot dumber as well, and also more yes yeah all (laughs) of us were there at one point in time I just I'm admitting it I I'll own up to it I just like had so much pride (laughs) and I was like no um I'm not going to ask for it um if the other person wants to do it they can uh and I think it's just well The pride thing needs to kind of just stop. (laughs) Nothing's going to work out that way. Um, Yeah, so I really, really liked what you said there. Um, What are some common misconceptions about emotional intimacy?
1: I think the one that I see the most is um, the idea of if we're in love and if we're going to be intimate, we're going to be brutally honest with one another. And that means I'm gonna tell you everything that I think about you at all times, um, which normally actually then doesn't even include all the good stuff. It's mostly just the really tough stuff, um, which I'm not a fan of. I don't think that's useful. Um, I really do think that you want to be thoughtful about the way that you are communicating, like who you think this person is and being thoughtful enough to censor yourself and filter yourself at times because it's not useful or helpful for them to hear some of the really negative things that you're feeling and then to really purposefully, because this happens, right? Where like they walk through the room and you're like, oh, oh my gosh, I love them so much, right? Like they're just, but like you don't say it cause you know, the TV's on and you're about to like sip your Coke and like it just, the moment passes. But we feel the need that if we're like, you left your shot, socks on the floor again, we have to say it. And so really thinking about pinpointing those moments of like true love and gratitude and joy that you have and sharing that more. Um, I also think the other thing is um, if we're intimate, then I should know every single thing about you. Like I have a right to the access to every you know, thought, memory, feeling that you're having. And again, it goes back to we are two separate people and we're adults and we're allowed privacy. And so no, like you don't get to know every thought in my head or, you know, everything that I've ever done. I get to, sh- to decide what you know about me and what you don't know. And the safer you are as a person, you know, and the more um, deep our relationship goes, the more willing I'll probably be to share more and more of myself with you but I do see that sometimes people feel like, oh, well, if we're at, at a certain place in our relationship, then I have a right to every single thought in their head. No, you don't. No, you don't. And so I think those are some of the things that are misconceptions about what intimacy is.
0: Yeah, that's a really good one, actually, um, which I never really thought about before. But thinking about it now, um, it makes so much sense how you might be really interested um, in what someone is thinking or you might want, you might yearn to know what they're thinking. It doesn't mean that you're entitled to it and you certainly shouldn't act that way. And it's definitely not going to make them feel safer and more willing or wanting to share those thoughts with you. Um, So, and then it goes back to the safety thing again of like, well the first thing you need to do is make make it a safe space make the person feel safe um yeah it all comes all the little things just intertwine
1: and like draw back to each other (laughs) yeah and like you said if you don't have safety you really don't have true intimacy You know, you might have some secret divulging or some stuff going on, but it's out of a power and control kind of situation and not out of true intimacy. And so being a safe person, it does mean, of course, like not punching people, but it also means not belittling people, not like dismissing when they're talking, not saying like, oh, you're so sensitive or like, oh, you already told me this. I don't need to hear it again. Or like this again, that like you have space for what they're saying and that you know how to set limits and boundaries in a safe way like somebody doesn't think you just go on and on for 45 minutes you know every night about the same thing but that you can say things really thoughtfully like i really care about you and i know this is a really important topic for you but i have to be honest we talked about this a lot last night and i have some things that i need to do tonight and so can i just let you know that i love you and i care about you but can we talk about this tomorrow instead Right. Which is still a way of going, please stop talking. But it's so <laughs> much kinder yeah. and it's so much more respectful, you know, that there are ways of being safe and still having your own boundaries and
0: limits. Yeah. The way you're talking to me, it's like I, 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 I felt like I probably did something wrong, but I felt so OK with it. <laughs> I actually like. I really, really felt that, and I think. But I think it's just also because your voice is very soothing, Ew. so that helps. <laughs> so good, good. <laughs> so, what a, you did mention a few things that um, couples should avoid saying to each other? What are some things that couples should say to each
1: other to make it a safe environment? Mm-hmm. And again, the wording is going to be different, right? Like for everybody. And I do this with couples all the time, where I actually, um, I do like to sort of act out things, and like people will kind of do the like, "Were you in our house last night?" Because that sounds like <laughs> the exact fight that we had. And like, well, when you work with as many people as I do, what you kind of start learning is, it's like all relationships are the same but they're all uniquely different, right? And so there's these facets of it where it's, we're all human and we all engage in this stuff. There's no perfect people out there who are like getting this right on the first try, but we're all uniquely different. And so my husband and I, and I think, you know, part of it's cause I'm a little dramatic and a little silly and like, but part of it's because I'm a therapist is that I use really corny language on purpose because I feel like, everyday life is so hard, you know, and like you're managing all this stuff and you're doing all this stuff. And like, I have the mouth of a sailor. I curse like crazy, like, but so when I'm really trying to show him that I see him and I love him and I appreciate him, I really do say things like, like, oh my gosh, you know, like you're my hero, you know, like, (laughs) oh, you saved me. Like, oh, thank you. You know, it's like, I'm a little gushy and he really responds to that. He appreciates it. He really likes it. And he does certain things like that for me too. Like he'll do, I really feel like it's very important that I'm a funny person. I think being funny is like one of the greatest things in the whole entire world. I agree. Right? And so like (laughs) when he looks at me and he's like, oh my gosh, you are so funny. And I'm just like, that is like key, right? Like just so key. And so I think it's paying attention to who your partner is and learning what's important to them. And then saying those things, because there are certain couples that I have where I'm like, okay, here's the script. All right, and here's what I want. Here's what we've covered in session. Here's what I want you guys to go home and like really say to each other. I'm gonna say it in this really corny way. You guys are never gonna say it this way because you would like gag if the other person actually said this to your face, right? You'd just be <laughs> like, you are full of it. So you have to like translate it into your own personal language. But it really is things like, you know, I see you, I appreciate you. I see what you did for me today. I see how hard you're working. Like these, like you were saying earlier about not just like, you're so smart, you know, but it's like when they're problem solving something to go, gosh, I'm amazed at the way your mind works. I never would have thought to come at it like that, but you have just made this like huge problem so much simpler for us to deal with. That's a, that's an amazing compliment, right? Because it's so specific and it's really like honing in on what they, what value they bring to your life. Um, and so I think there's that combination of like really letting them know that you appreciate them and that you value their existence in your life, but then also being able to be aware that it shouldn't all be performance based, right? It shouldn't be like, oh, I love all the things you do for me that there's something too just about the person and who they are, that just being with them and not because of the stuff they do, but because of who they are as a person is really meaningful too.
0: So as you mentioned, cultivating emotional intimacy and effective conflict resolution, it requires a lot of ongoing effort and commitment. So what are some specific practices or activities that you'd recommend to couples to strengthen the emotional
1: intimacy? So one thing that I recommend a lot um, and my husband and I actually did this our first year of marriage every single week, Um, partly because I'm a giant nerd and I had just graduated from my master's program in marriage and family therapy. But we had a couples meeting every single week. And if you are in a really high conflict zone, I recommend that if you're not. Like once a month is fine. But the once a week couples meeting is this idea where you stop criticizing all week long. Like you stop fighting about this. You stop pointing things out all the time. And you know that like maybe your meeting is set for Sunday night at 8 p.m. You're gonna sit down. And basically the question, I would say like, if you wanna start with like a little card game or something fun to light the mood, go for it. But the question really is, how can I be a better partner to you? And like, are there any things that you'd like me to pay attention to this week in order to be a better partner to you? Because here's this time that's calm and established and set aside. The rules are, you don't you know, name call, you don't like fight about it. You also don't um, defend yourself and you don't like explain why you don't do the things they're asking you to do. It's just, how can I be a better partner to you? The person tells you and you go, okay, I'll work on that this week. And you don't have to, there's no like fight about it. It's just, okay, I'll work on that this week. And that this is a place where you could bring up one or two of your top complaints so that everything else just sort of floats away. And I say, like, if you're in a long-term relationship and you're doing this every week or every two weeks or every month, you will have an opportunity to like name every single thing that you want different at some point, right? But doing it all week long, all day long is just eroding the, the safety and the, the intimacy of your relationship. And so put a pause, play nice, and know that every single week you've got an opportunity to kind of assert what it is that you'd like your partner to be working on. And a lot of couples have found it really helpful. And like my husband and I found it really helpful because it cut down on so much of that like nitpicky, a kind of like nastiness that goes on. And like, I knew like, oh, I've got, I've got. And then by the time I got to Sunday night, the stuff that I was so annoyed with on Tuesday felt fairly meaningless. And so sometimes just that time of going, is that really that important to me? It's not. Here's the one thing I'm gonna ask him to pay attention to this week. And so a lot of couples have found that pretty helpful. The other thing I recommend is um, sitting in a dark room back to back so that like you're physically touching, but like you can't see each other's faces because people get pretty activated by facial expressions. um, And some people find a lot of eye contact really overwhelming and kind of scary. And so sitting back to back and having a discussion about something that way, or even just practicing like, Let's talk about you know the vacation that we're trying to plan, that we keep arguing about. And you get 10 minutes and you tell me what you're thinking. And then I'll reflect back, okay, so I heard you say you wanted to go on a cruise and blah, blah, blah. This is important. And then the other person gets 10 minutes to talk about what they're thinking. And then the other person says, okay, I heard you say you want to kite sailing or you know, whatever. And that let's agree that we're not making any decisions but that like, do I wanna ask some questions about well, what would it look like if we were on a cruise? Could we go kite sailing as one of the you know, activities? Do you picture that as something we could do? And then I almost think about it like, if you're on a first date and you ask somebody like, so like, what would be a super fun vacation? And they start talking, you wouldn't go, well, no, I'm not gonna go on a cruise. That's terrible, <laughs> right? Like, no, like you're just getting to know this person. And so this back to back in the dark does create this intimacy. And if you treat it like we're not problem solving, I'm just listening and getting to know you. And I'm hoping that you're going to listen and get to know me. We're just kind of dreaming a little bit here. It actually builds so much space for the other person to come around to go, you know, like, I don't know, I've been thinking about it. Maybe a cruise would be fun. You know, that it just, it does have a tendency to kind of like take all of the, um, air out of the conflict and create some space for deep understanding. That's such great advice. And that's something I'm definitely
0: going to remember because I don't think I've ever tried that back to back thing. I've certainly sat in a dark room with a partner before, but like that's like you can still see and feel the facial expressions and the body language and everything. And it just feels very confronting sometimes. Uh, so that's a good trick. Well, I shouldn't call it trick. That sounds a bit more nefarious than it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) But that, that is very good advice that I will be taking into account for the future. Um, now, before we move on to the open mic and the end of the episode, let's, um, take a look at some questions from the audience. Um. One question someone asked is, do unresolved emotional issues affect conflict resolution in relationships? And if
1: so, in what ways? I mean, absolutely, right? I mean, we all bring baggage in from our childhoods. Like we all have this unresolved stuff and there are certain trigger things, I think for everybody that sort of tap into those pains, those wounds that we bring from our childhood or from our earlier experiences and so often you do want to be aware of like am I having a bigger reaction to what's going on you know not to say that there isn't still a problem with what's going on but is my reaction maybe bigger because it's kind of tapping into this other stuff you know it's like the daddy issues or the mommy issues or the, you know the whatever the abandonment issues that absolutely those get played out. And so part of what we talked about earlier, that sense of like, can I know what feeling I'm feeling? Do I have the ability to regulate that? Do I know how to turn down the volume of the feeling that I'm having so that I can really get a better sense of how upset I need to be about what's going on because that will allow me to communicate better. And honestly, it's one of the things that EMDR addresses so beautifully is that, sort of untangles those childhood memories and wounds and threads. So that now when like a similar thing presents itself in your current relationship, it still is painful and it still is irritating and you're still going to address it. But I do kind of sort of say the volume gets turned way down so that you're no longer flooded and you're just like, huh you know, like, yeah, I don't like it. Like, ah, we need to address this. (laughs) And you might still feel like a little tiny sizzle of the childhood stuff in there, but it's not hijacking you the way it once might have. Um, And so I kind of really love EMDR's ability for even just those sort of day-to-day kind of things. Um, But the answer is yes. And like, you really do have to do your work to address that so that it doesn't flood into things where it's not really appropriate.
0: So in that case would people essentially need to figure out their own abandonment, daddy issues or mother mommy issues before entering a, a relationship or is that like something that they can work on simultaneously?
1: Sometimes you don't even know you have daddy or mommy issues until so you're in the relationship <laughs> and they're getting <laughs> all triggered, right? And so I, there really is like it, it's sometimes if you can, if you can be open and curious about the fact that you are human and you are evolving and you are changing and that relationships can be transformative, then it's to really be able to go, ah, this is some really interesting information that I'm kind of getting. And so you could absolutely do that work within the context of a relationship. You just want to be really thoughtful that you're not like your partner is not a garbage can, right? They are not a dumpster for you to just dump all of your junk all over. You have to be responsible for who you are and like what you bring into the relationship.
0: Yeah, trash can, but sometimes trash cannot. Sometimes trash sometimes trash just cannot. <laughs> So <laughs> um, next question is, what are some warning signs that a relationship may be lacking in emotional intimacy? And how can individuals address these issues?
1: Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is boredom. You know, that like, if you feel really bored around this other person or within the context of the relationship, I think that's sort of a good sign that you aren't really connecting and developing that intimacy, um, I think probably feeling belittled, you know, as well. Like if you're starting to feel kind of like small and dismissed, um, there too is that sort of lack of intimacy because intimacy means this person cares about you and they've got the space to care about you. Um, and so, some of the things that you can do, I think, if it's something like boredom, you know that. That's where, like we were talking about at the beginning, like new experiences, trying new things, some adventure together, building those memories and being able to have that like rush of adrenaline together that like is kind of exciting. Um, Those kinds of things can help build intimacy. Um, And I think if it's like you're feeling dismissed and belittled, I think that's, you know, in some ways I kind of have this like green light and green flag in relationship and red flag in relationship kind of stuff where it's like, you know, green flags are, you know, oh, they pay attention when I speak, you know, and oh, like they show up when they (laughs) said they were gonna show up and, you know, oh, like they offered to pay for dinner and they paid for dinner. They didn't forget their wallet. You know, like there are all these green flag things that show that a person is trustworthy and worthy of your time and attention. And then there are those red flags. And if you kind of do that assessment and look and see, are there lots of red flags that are sort of getting in the way of me feeling intimate? Maybe building intimacy isn't what's needed here. Maybe leaving is what's needed here, right? Like, I mean, maybe breaking up and not being with this person. If there are so many ways in which they are not a healthy partner for me, that's such.
0: I feel like I'm saying this over and over again throughout this episode, but again. Um, that's such a good way of putting it because sometimes there is an end to a relationship and you just have to make the call and not every relationship lasts forever. Um, and that's okay because each one still teaches us some things, um, and makes us both better people for the next one, uh, Yeah, thank you so much for answering our questions, um, Shelby. Now move on to the open mic. This is your chance to talk about anything
1: you're passionate about. So the floor is yours. All right, so I'm super passionate about all things therapy. I love, love, love it. And I've loved being able to really do my life's work as a therapist. But the other thing that I've started doing probably about eight years ago um, is writing. And I had an idea for a book and I wasn't sure um, if it was gonna be a self-help book, you know, like if it was gonna sort of be professionally kind of more in my therapy lane. But then the more I was playing around with it and like how I wanted to deal with it became a novel. And it really was like, I really think people learn so much through story. And I think that like seeing yourself in other characters and other circumstances Um, sometimes allows us to even integrate things better than if we were reading a self-help book or you know like watching a documentary or something and so I just love the power of story to help people feel seen and heard and to give them hope and maybe a little information about how to go about managing certain things and so um, my first novel um, I queried and got an agent with my first novel and so I was super excited she's really amazing Um, I'm writing my third novel right now, and um, most of all three of my books really kind of look at mother-daughter family dynamics with some mental health component. So I get to kind of use what I know um, professionally in the books that I write. Um, but this one takes place in Northern California in Humboldt County, where there's um, currently lots and lots of marijuana farms, and um, it spans a time frame from the late '60s to 2018, and Um, There's a a hippie commune that's developed that then over time morphs into a pot farm and it's um, from the like four different women's perspectives um, of kind of what it means to be a woman in the world and what sacrifices you have to make as a mother and that conflict of what do you owe your children versus what do you owe yourself and what are you will like responsible to give versus what are you allowed to give yourself? And so looking at what that means um through through this really kind of funky cool hippie lens has been really, really, really fun. And
0: I love that. It sounds so amazing. It reminds me a lot of Gilmore Girls. Um how long did you take to write this novel?
1: Um, so I haven't so my first novel took probably like three years because part of that was figuring out how to write a novel right like i didn't i don't have an mfa in creative writing or anything and um and so i i got to work with some really amazing developmental editors and go to some really cool um like weeklong workshops where i felt like i was sort of really learning the craft of novel writing my second novel took me two years um, like start to like finish ready to go out on sub And this one's taking me a lot longer. It's just, I think there's so much more research that I have to do. And I think there's um, so many different perspectives. Um, And it's been a really, really busy time um, with the private practice, you know, so it's like just sort of juggling everything. But um, yeah, I started in January of last year and my goal is by October 1 of this year to have the full first draft finished. And so it's taking me almost two years to write the first full wow. first draft. October
0: 1st. That's actually coming pretty soon. Um, are you revealing
1: the name of the novel at all? Well, the name always changes. And so usually the title of my novel is the main character. And so right now it's Blue because the main protagonist, there's four different perspectives, but the main protagonist's her name is Blue. Um, and so that's what it's called now. But I think as a, as a writer, you have to always be willing to know that if you, um, are publishing with, you know, one of the big five, they're probably going to end up changing your title, you you know, and they're going to ask you to, you know, morph quite a bit of things. And so you have to be a little open to that creative process. Yeah. It is the, one of the trials and
0: tribulations of being an artist, right? It's like on one hand, creative freedom and expression. On the other hand, um, money and support
1: (laughs) you know and and what is commercially viable right yeah Yeah. what do they sell absolutely Yeah. yeah
0: thank you so much uh shelby for joining us today i really enjoyed hearing about not just your novel um but also your interests and most importantly the um emotional intimacy part and your voice is just so soothing i have to say that again like so many times you just keep talking and talking and talking and i'm like wow i feel so relaxed and so safe
1: <laughs> oh well I- good it actually it's a it really helps as a therapist if you can have a pretty soothing voice so that you know clients can actually tolerate listening to the feedback you have to give them
0: it does um if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you do where should they go
1: yes so i have a website for my private practice that also houses all of my speaking stuff and my books um and that is www.shelbyreillymft.com
0: shelbyreillymft.com That's the website if you want to go and check it out and we'll link it in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Shelby. And thank you everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode. You've been listening to Veloscope, the Relationship Science Insights Podcast produced by LMSL, the Live Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at re.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Marie Stella. Thanks for tuning in.